their whole appreciation of the nutritive value of good quality food and how developing recipes can be fun. And I think this is the thing that really is the unique aspect of Little Kitchen Academy, understanding food literacy and making it fun. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. Like the late, great Whitney Houston, Little Kitchen Academy believes that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. The rest of the opening verse mirrors Little Kitchen's vision as well, but I'll stop quoting the greatest love of all right now, and I'll get on with my point. In order to best prepare our children for their future, we need to understand our collective past. And that's where Ricky Yada comes in. Ricky is the Dean of the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at the University of British Columbia. He's been studying various aspects of food, including how it's produced, prepared, and preserved for well over four decades. He has a wealth of knowledge on the subject. Now, Ricky's been in his fair share of kitchens over the years, and when he saw what was happening in the one at Little Kitchen Academy, he was eager to create a relationship between his faculty and Little Kitchen. Ricky recently agreed to meet me in the kitchen to talk about those details and so much more. So let's get to it. Let's start with one that you probably get asked quite often when people hear your title. What does the Faculty of Land and Food Systems encompass? Well, that's an interesting question, Scott, because that question was asked of me by my siblings when I was appointed as Dean of Land and Food Systems. And when I said that I was going to be Dean, they go, what the hang is Land and Food Systems? And so I had to explain to them in days gone by, it was formerly the Faculty of Agricultural Sciences. And then they go, oh, okay, now I understand. So Land and Food Systems is a faculty name that was changed, Scott, probably about 15 years ago. And that was done by one of my predecessors in response to, I think, declining enrollments at all of the ag schools right across Canada because there was an impression or feeling that agriculture still represented traditional agriculture. You know, rubber boots, pitchforks, tractors. But it's a wonderful science and discipline that really has changed with the time. So we're into robotics, artificial intelligence, you know, smart farming. So all of the above. Well, we can go down your history in this field because it is a lengthy one. I want to know, first and foremost, how did you become interested in the science of food, Ricky, as opposed to the way that most of us are generally interested in food? Well, I think I come to my interest in food genuinely. So my parents, when I was growing up, had a grocery store in southeast Vancouver. And so I've always been surrounded by food. And so my curiosity, even as a small child, was how are these things produced and what makes up these foods? 
So I was fortunate enough when I came to university to see the field of food science. And it talked about all the science and technology around food. And so it met my curiosity, Scott. Well, it sounds like it did. And I want to go back before you even got to school because you mentioned something very interesting to me, that your parents owned a grocery store and that was your first real exposure to the industry. What do you think the most valuable lessons you learned from your parents and from what their place was in the food industry, Ricky? I think it was really around food literacy. Although, you know, my parents' store sold finished products, I also appreciated that the finished product was one step in getting that food to a consumer, but it had to start somewhere. And that somewhere was often in the field. And so strawberries, which were converted into frozen strawberries, actually started in a strawberry field in Richmond. And so they got converted. And so I guess that was kind of the lesson I learned in growing up in a grocery store environment, Scott. We generally take that for granted. I think as a society, I will put my hand up right now and say that I do. It's not something I think about on a daily basis, even though I know a little bit more about it than I think the average person. Why do you think that is, Ricky, that we take that for granted? I think, Scott, you know, it's probably a reflection of the time where we live in a society or a period of time where time is the most valuable non-renewable resource. And so when we come back and have dinner or we're out for dinner, I don't think we really appreciate all the nuances of the foods that we eat. You know, we sit down at a table, we consume it, and we think not too much about where that food came from. So I think it's a time factor and it's a reflection of the fact that Students, parents, you know, aren't exposed to days gone by where it really was an agriculturally based society. And so we don't see that element, Scott. When you see your students learn more about the food industry and where this food that we consume on a daily basis comes from, what's the light bulb that seems to go on for them and how do they alter? I know you can't speak for all of them, but just in general, how do they alter the way that they view the industry and perhaps eating in general? Well, I think, you know, what that light bulb moment is, is the application of the science and technology that we teach them at universities, colleges, high schools, hopefully at elementary schools, at Little Kitchen Academy, of how do you translate that science and that technology into practical applications? And I think that is the light bulb moment. They go, aha, oh, this is why it's important to understand how food spoils and what are some of the ways that we can prevent food spoilage or quality deterioration. It's interesting you talk about science and technology as it applies to the food industry because there is a push and pull that goes on, I think, in general society when talking about that, Ricky organic versus not organic or natural versus using enhancers as far as growing food and the way that it is preserved. How do you balance that in your industry with the general views that seem to be in the population? Well, I think, Scott, the way we deal with that is we give our students a sound background in the fundamentals and principles around, you know, some of the reactions that go on with food, some of the preservative methods. 
and we let them make a choice. And I think that's the critical thing. I think it's very dangerous to go down the path of being an advocate for one or the other. And our whole role at universities and educational institutions is to give students a good science and technology basis and for them to make the choice of whether or not they're going to actually adopt that science or the technology. But it's all around, you know, science-based, technology-based decision-making. Choice is a really good place for us to dive into your affiliation with Little Kitchen Academy and even how you became aware of it. You mentioned it before. What was your first exposure, Ricky, to Little Kitchen Academy? So, Scott, it's interesting because we live in a place in Vancouver near Falls Creek or Granville Island. And on my way to work, I would come up 10th Avenue and there was this little storefront and it was called Little Kitchen Academy. And I was always kind of curious, what is that? And I guess our connect was when Brian and Felicity reached out to me looking for a place where they could source some of their starting material. And they knew that in Land and Food Systems, we have affiliated a farm, which is right on campus, and it's a certified organic farm. And they were passionate about getting good quality food as a starting base for the students to use in the development of recipes. So they reached out and I had a wonderful first conversation with Brian and Felicity. And they said, man, we need to partner. And that's how it started. So one of those kind of serendipitous kind of events. So, you know, a lot of good things happen through serendipity. And I think this is one of those good things. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And I'm wondering, as somebody who has been exposed to probably every arm of the food industry, what it was that Brian and Felicity said that resonated with you and your approach to food, sustainability, the whole gamut. Well, I think the thing that really resonated with me was their discussion around food literacy understanding, as I said in the past, where our food comes from. And they were also very passionate and still are very passionate about having children and young adults understand the importance of ingredients and the nutritional value of those ingredients as they develop a recipe. And probably something that we haven't talked about a lot, but I think they really do appreciate and understand that Food could be used as a means for preventative health care by eating healthy food, good quality food. Maybe there's a chance for us to avoid some of those chronic diseases that are so high in the minds of society, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, some of those issues. There's so much to get into from that answer alone, but I want to go back to the term itself food literacy, Ricky, because that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean where your food comes from. It can mean understanding what your food is composed of down at a molecular level. It can have to do with sustainability. In practical terms, what does the concept of food literacy mean to you? You know, Scott, I think it's all of the above. Really, you know, understanding where our food comes from. And as I talked about, you know, understanding that frozen strawberries started in a field in Richmond and then were converted to frozen strawberries. I think Brian and Felicity understand that very, very well. But 
you know, on top of that, as I said before, their whole appreciation of the nutritive value of good quality food and how developing recipes can be fun. And I think this is the thing that really is the unique aspect of Little Kitchen Academy, understanding food literacy and making it fun. And choice and independence and all of those things that go into the philosophy at Little Kitchen Academy. When you saw what was happening in the classroom, how that philosophy, how those practices that Little Kitchen Academy employs, Ricky, how did they align with what students in your faculty are actually learning about? You know, Scott, that was completely congruent with what we're trying to do within the faculty. You know, kudos to Brian and Felicity. We needed to start this process earlier in the educational process, and that's what they're tackling. And as I said, kudos to them. Because I think the earlier we can start with teaching children about food literacy and all of the you know nuances around food literacy, the better they will understand. And as you said, making choices and understanding that as they develop a recipe, they have choices in mixing and matching some of those ingredients. So it's not as prescriptive as maybe people think a cookbook would be, we are giving them options and choices. And exposing them to things that perhaps they wouldn't be exposed to on a daily basis were it not for an opportunity like the one that exists at Little Kitchen Academy. You mentioned serendipity earlier, and part of that serendipity was this partnership that was formed between UBC and Little Kitchen Academy here in Vancouver. And that meant that dietetic students would have an opportunity from a practicum placement point of view to be in Little Kitchen Academy. I'm wondering what you hope those students are going to be able to take away from their practicum placements. Well, you know, Scott, I think the beauty of the relationship between us and Little Kitchen Academy is, you know, the best learning experiences, I would argue, is when students can actually practice what we teach them in the classroom. I think many of us are better learners and students when we get our hands wet or dirty and are actually, as I said, applying some of those principles, concepts that we teach them in the classroom, which, you know, at universities, we need to do a lot more. I agree with you wholeheartedly because I, like you, I'm a UBC graduate, and that was one of the things in my time, which is a long time ago, Ricky, of going there, that I found that there wasn't enough practical application during my degree program of those skills. And now it seems like it's converting. How fast is it converting in the Faculty of Land and Food Sciences? Well, you know what, Scott, if I said we could do this faster, that would be the ideal situation. But, you know, it's the concept of let's learn to crawl, then walk, then run. And hopefully that's the approach we've taken in the faculty as students progress through their years in a program. What kind of feedback are you getting from the students who have their practicum placement at Little Kitchen Academy? Because this has been going on for a little while now. Well, you know, I think my answer is going to be short. Positive. (laughs) Very positive. And I'll go back to the comments I made with regards to students being able to actually practice what we teach them in the classroom. But more importantly, to see the joy of the students and young adults that are at Little Kitchen Academy as they 
actually understand all the nuances of, you know, food literacy and recipe development and food as a preventative means for health care. I think that's the rewarding aspect. When their light bulb goes on and the students go, I think we've had an impact. And it probably shows them as well, Ricky, that there are a lot of different places within the food ecosystem that these skills can be applied to, not perhaps the narrow ones that they suspected going into a program like dietetics. Oh, yeah. You know, I think as you've mentioned, Scott, you know, this ability to have options and sometimes within a university program, it is very prescriptive. And so students don't have that ability to see other sides of application. And I think that's the beauty, again, of the relationship between us and Little Kitchen Academy. It exposes students to a situation which they may have not had in the past and to work with young people. And, you know, how rewarding is that? Extremely, extremely rewarding. I would know that myself as a former student, and I think you would agree with that, as you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. Now, we would be naive to think that Little Kitchen Academy is the only local business in Vancouver that would work with UBC on the food system side. I know that there have been events in the past. You've worked with Vancouver restaurants over the years. Ricky, when you are looking at a potential partnership with a Little Kitchen Academy or another local business, what do you need to hear that makes you say, yeah, that's going to work for everybody involved here? Well, I think, again, it's kind of reverse engineering things, Scott. You know, at the end of the day, what impact did that relationship have or is having? And to see, again, young adults and children have the light bulbs being turned on moment of understanding food literacy and the importance of ingredients and choices and options, I think, is the whole value of these relationships. I want to go back to food literacy for a second. I'm wondering if you were to handicap it, and I know this is an extreme generalization, but on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you think the average North American stands when it comes to food literacy? Sadly, I would say it's, you know, around the 4 or 5. You know, the whole concept of understanding where food comes from is still a huge challenge. And I'll give you an example, Scott. So a friend of mine is an instructor at the University of Prince Edward Island. And in one of his classes, he put up a picture of a potato in a tree. And he asked the students to identify, is there a issue in this picture slide? And one brave young lady put up her hand and said, Dr. Coffin, I think that potato's not ripe enough to pick. You know, as laughable as it is, Scott, it's a sad commentary that there's a huge challenge in understanding where our food comes from. And the irony is this is Prince Edward Island, where, you know, if you want to talk about synonyms, Prince Edward Island, potatoes, I think that would be a good one. The fine folks at Cavendish are probably rolling over when they're hearing this, Ricky, because of everything you're talking about. I agree with you, especially as somebody who has actually had the the opportunity and privilege to visit Prince Edward Island. I would agree with that. Those terms should be synonymous. As you said earlier, these changes aren't going to happen overnight. It's a slow process. But I'm wondering, as somebody who works with this on a daily basis and has been involved in this 
for a number of years, and I'm talking about food systems. What are a few things you believe that everyone should know when it comes to food? I'll talk about the process, Scott. I think as Little Kitchen Academy does so very well is starting to engage young people, young children early on in that educational process. I think that's the real crux. Can we get our population to understand the value of food and the nutritive properties of food and the choices that people have in making their decisions? I'm not one, Scott, to use the term junk food. I think anything in excess can be harmful. I think, as a lot of my colleagues would talk about moderation, I think there's nothing wrong about having certain foods in moderation that may not be as healthy as other foods. But, you know, food is more than just nutritive value. Food is something that we use to celebrate. It's a comforting kind of scenario for individuals. So there's a lot of complexity around why we eat food, but understanding the importance of food and where it comes from, and as I said numerous times, about the nutritive value of food and the options that we have, I think is critical. I'm lockstep in what you just generally outlined. My personal approach to food is everything in moderation. That's just the way I look at it. I know everybody's a little bit different, but I think you just hit the nail on the head. If people can understand the basics so that they're making informed choices, not, okay, this is bad for you, this is good for you, and it's a black and white issue. It's, no, when you make this choice, here is what you're choosing, and that doesn't necessarily inform every single choice you're going to make, but it's that education component that we need to improve. Oh, I completely agree, Scott. You know, the whole issue of, and I'll say science-based informed decision-making is what we're trying to do at Land and Food Systems. And, you know, it's superb that Brian and Felicity understand that completely. So you've been in food systems, you've been in the food industry in one way or another for most of your life. I'm wondering how, if at all, studying the science of food has altered the way that you personally approach eating and personally approach nutrition, Ricky. Well, I think, and I'm fortunate, I think I'm a healthy eater. But, you know, as I say, I do indulge in things. I have a real weakness for pie. I have a real weakness for ice cream. But I don't eat those things three times a day. It's a treat. And I... And I I think I view those things as a treat in my concept of moderation. All right, I need to know now what your favorite flavor of ice cream is and your favorite flavor of pie is. If you can only choose one and it's got to be on your table, what are you picking? Okay, so I'll start off with ice cream. And Scott, please do not grimace when I say this, <laughs> but I like tiger tail ice cream. And so this is orange and licorice, which it's interesting. A lot of my friends, my wife is not a big fan of tiger tail, but for some odd reason, I like tiger tail ice cream. And if we talk about pie, well, gee, you're asking me to make a choice. Hmm. That's a tough one for me because I love key lime pie, but I also love banana cream pie. So, sorry, Scott, I can't give you 
a single answer on the pie question. Fair enough. You've got a tie for first. There's a couple of great things about that. One, I don't know Felicity's top pie if she were to choose, but I do know Brian's is key lime pie. So perhaps kindred spirits long before you even met. Oh no. Oh no. It's not the six degrees of separation. It's probably that half degree of separation. And maybe if Brian and I do 23 and me, we may be related, which we didn't know. (laughs) Yes, you may. The other thing I would say that's a positive in your favor is that by choosing an ice cream that a lot of people grimace at, you don't have to share, Ricky. When you get a bunch of ice cream, you don't have to share that. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know that tub of ice cream? It's all mine. It's all mine, Scott. This seems like a really good place to jump in with the question that everybody who joins us on Meet Me in the Kitchen gets asked. They ask this of everybody at Little Kitchen Academy. I will ask it of you now. Ricky, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? Okay, so I'm going to reveal part of my genetic makeup in this question. I'm of Japanese heritage, so the one ingredient that we always have is soy sauce. And, you know, it's one of those condiments, I guess, that I think is so versatile. And so it's the one thing, if you come to the Yada home, you'll see soy sauce in the cupboard. It is extremely versatile, and it's used in so many different dishes and so many different sauces. You're right. That's a very good one to have. And it's interesting when we talk about this question with a lot of people who come on the podcast, because... Many people do, as you just did, Ricky, and they focus on an actual tangible ingredient. Other people think about a philosophy or perhaps a term that captures how they are in the kitchen or how they want to be in the kitchen. I wonder for you if it's discovery or exploration or a word that is associated with that, given what you've pursued in your life. I would say I'm an adventurous eater. So I like to experiment with things, but I'll tell you, I'll try anything once. And, you know, my wife is a very visual texture person. And so if it doesn't look good or smell good, it's going to be a tough battle for her to put that into her mouth. But I think that in order for us to make a objective opinion about something, I need to try it. Well, and this is what relates back to Little Kitchen Academy for me. As you describe that, Ricky, and as you talk about your personal philosophy when it comes to trying new things, this to me is why it's so important to have this education process happen with children. There comes a point in our lives where we're not completely shut off to new ideas, as you certainly just detailed, but we form habits at one point in our life. We get into ruts. Children, they are like blank canvases. And it's amazing to me to see the number of children and families who go through a little kitchen academy with the idea that their child doesn't like ingredient X, only to find out that when the child uses that, experiments with that ingredient, all of a sudden he or she becomes a consumer and almost an advocate for it. Oh, I I completely agree, Scott. You know, I'll tell you a bit of an anecdote here. So growing up in a Japanese family, when I was growing up, sashimi was often on our table. But I said to my mom, I can't eat that, right? Because the whole concept of eating raw fish was a little bit foreign to me. And I didn't have many Japanese friends. So when they came over, they go, what's that? 
and I'd go raw fish. And it's interesting, the transformation. At that point in time, they go, how yucky. Now, if they were to come over, they can't get enough. But my mom said to me, and this was the light bulb moment, how do you know you don't like it? Because you haven't tried it. And so once I tried it, not so bad. <laughs> so, you know, it's that whole concept that I think Brian and Felicity tried to reinforce at Little Kitchen Academy. Be explorers. Be adventuresome. You know, be willing to actually participate in other ethnic cuisines. Sometimes we're not exposed to that. And so if you're not exposed, how would you ever know? You're right. And it sounds to me like you had a very open-minded mother. Perhaps your father was the same way. Is that where that now comes from, do you think? I think all kids have that pushback moment that perhaps you had with sashimi. But do you credit your parents with giving that to you throughout the years? Oh, yeah, definitely, Scott. You know, there's one thing my father uh, would say to the family. He said, you know, if they were down to the last straw, the last straw would be putting good food on the table, right? We'll always have good, healthy food on the table. And I never forgot that. And I think that's part of my you know, rationale for being involved in land and food and understanding food systems and food science and technology. So as I said, probably at the beginning, it comes to me genuinely. I sense that you have a genuine love and passion for food as well. And that's something that we need to have more of. The reason we called this podcast Meet Me in the Kitchen is because that's where a lot of people end up at any great gathering or any great party it is an intimate environment. And when you invite people into your home and you share food with them, it should be an enjoyable experience. And sometimes I feel as though that's lost on people. Yeah, I agree. You know, as I've previously said, you know, we eat food for just more than the nutritive value. Food becomes that connector. You know, I'll borrow a term from Malcolm Gladwell. You know, he talks about connections and connectors. Food is that inanimate object that connects people. He was referring to people being people connectors, but I would argue that food, as you've outlined, Scott, is that great common denominator. There are very few things that you can say are completely transferable around the world, but food is one of them. You don't have to speak a language when you wind up somewhere that everybody else is talking one way and you might not be able to participate but you can bridge that gap with food. At least that's my opinion. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I would argue that even if you can't communicate in the language, the expressions that people have when they're enjoying a piece of food or some food product, I think is the great convincer and brings down that wall of, gee, I don't know if I want to try it. But if you see somebody putting that food product into your mouth and really enjoying it, you go, well, it must be okay and it must be good. They seem to be enjoying it. You're absolutely right. I think we've all had experiences like that, or at least hopefully we've all had experiences like that at some point in our life. I want to tap back into the academic side of you for a second here, Ricky, because we talked about consumption, sustainability. Obviously, we mentioned that land is a part of what you oversee at UBC, there are a lot of issues right now, or seemingly a lot of issues on planet Earth when it comes to human consumption and land use. 
What do you think the biggest issue we're facing as a planet is right now that we need to get working on? Well, I think the big issue, Scott, undoubtedly is around food security. You know, being able to feed good quality food to the people who need it. And, you know, I've often been asked to talk about the impact of COVID, which we're still in, on the food system. And I said, one of the lessons I think we've learned, and hopefully it'll resonate for a long time, is the importance of the food that we grow in our local regions. I would say that, you know, whatever the next challenge may be, and if borders were to close, the global food supply system that we've become accustomed to may not be there. And so we're going to have to rely on what we grow in our backyard and maybe resort to kind of the technologies that our mothers, at least my mother, my grandmother used, you know, freezing and canning. Because, you know, what better way to have foods available throughout the year than to actually preserve them? Because if we rely on fresh product, we're really restricted to a certain segment of the year. And then, you know, we have to deal with spoilage. But one of the ways that we can extend the availability is through processing technologies. And I think that's something that Brian and Felicity are also passionate about when they're teaching kids about recipe development, because they are processing some of those ingredients into a different product than from what they started with. I agree. And when you walk into Little Kitchen Academy, no matter where it is in the world, the other thing you always see is that growing wall. And that is a hat tip to what you talked about, that we do need to produce some of our own food. And it exposes children to the reality that this is possible. It can be indoors where you're growing your own food. Maybe you have the great privilege and luxury of having a backyard where you may want to start your own garden. But just having that out there as a reality and changing that perception from a young age is so important. Yep. And, you know, uh, Scott, as you know, in Vancouver, there's a number of community gardens. And I think this is part of understanding food literacy, because a lot of people who have grown up in an urban environment, as we said, you know, the huge challenge is understanding where their food comes from. And, you know, gardening and taking care of a garden, I look around and it's a therapy. So you see people out there and I don't think, you know, prime among their, you know, reasons for doing it is growing food, but their appreciation of how the tendering of food and how the growth of food is so therapeutic. I think that's a real benefit of some of these community gardens. I agree with you. And I think the other thing is the satisfaction and pride one gets out of growing something from a seed. You see it with the kids at Little Kitchen Academy. The students come in there and when they make a recipe from scratch, you see that pride. And I think when you grow something in your own garden and you share that with people and the lettuce in your salad or the tomatoes in your salad came from your own backyard, there's a real sense of pride in that. And it adds to that whole attitude that we talked about and enjoyment of food itself. So a bit of an anecdote again, Scott. So I was fortunate enough to attend a fundraiser for a group called Ag in the Classroom. So these are teachers who are trying to talk about and teach about agri-food systems. And I had the privilege of sitting at a table with two grade one teachers. 
And they said one of the most enjoyable parts of their year was when they started to grow potatoes in pots. You know, the students were just so thrilled when at the end of a period of time, they saw little potatoes at the bottom of these plants and they go, oh, that was their aha moment, right? And so as you speak about the appreciation of seeing where our food comes from, you plant it, the seed in the ground, and it becomes a plant, and the plant produces a product, and how cathartic that can be. And so completely agree, Scott. You seem like a very positive person, so I want to end on a positive note. I asked about what the biggest challenge we're facing as a planet is right now, and you told a very detailed story about COVID and some of the things we realized. What gives you the most encouragement when it comes to food moving forward? That experience or hearing about that experience with those grade one teachers, that's a aha moment for me. And that's a warm and fuzzy feeling for me. Seeing the kids at Little Kitchen Academy and the young children and the young adults, you know, going and having that aha moment and saying, oh my God, this is what we can do. And it really empowers them, Scott, about taking their life choices in their own hands and saying, I have the ability to change my life and maybe people around me. And by the way, Scott, I think I'm the only adult that's made it to the growing wall. I understand that Felicity and Brian actually are very vigilant about not having adults approach the growing wall And I guess I snuck through their security system and I saw the growing wall. And I think I even touched it. So you can't tell them. Well, I'm wondering what choice you made then. I asked you about your ice cream and pie choices earlier. What did you choose to sample off the growing wall? Well, I think it uh, it was some of the lettuce that was growing there. And so, you know, you know, I guess I have that privilege of going through the security system and actually tasting the fruits of the wall. You did. And I look forward to the privilege of meeting you in person at some point, Ricky. And if I do, I'm bringing over some key lime or some banana cream pie. Okay, so we need to expedite that meeting in person then, Scott, because I think my meter is reading kind of low on both those pies. So I need to fill it back up. Yes, you do. And we'll do that in a hurry. Ricky, thank you very much for doing this today. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate what you're doing when it comes to empowering these next generations. Well, thanks so much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure and it's been a conversation which is even more enjoyable than having that typical interview. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen?